John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 696.mk1618 certificate number 527 that's a short certificate number maybe the shortest ever latril twice mr vale was told by doctors he had terminal cancer and twice he survived and gave much of the credit to eating apricot seeds for the latril inside which some people consider an alternative anti-cancer agent because you and I both love to talk about patent medicines. We do. We, we do. Lo- we love nostrums. Nostra. We, we've uh, nostrils. We've, we've been uh, holding off in uh, releasing our own homeopathic medicine uh, cabinet, which we, is going to have eleven different medicines guaranteed to. Each one cures everything, so yeah. it's not clear why we have all eleven of them. Hair loss. It's going to. It's going to return elasticity to your skin. It's going to plump up your lips. Hangnails, diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, Parkinson's, we do it all. It's going to tighten your anus. It will. Everything will tighten your anus, but that's just because it tastes very bad. <laughs> it's got that sour mm. taste. That that you know means healing. Yeah. A Sour Patch Kid, when, when, when you feel those sphincters tighten after you eat a Sour Patch Kid, you're like, oh, that's good for me. Yeah, that's nice. That's, that's the, nice. That sour taste. That's uh, That's what I needed. Yeah. That's what my body craves. There's a that's right. Well, Citric you know, acid. it's um it's the electrolytes that plants crave. But it's also, you know, it's a what there's going to be an element uh part part of my contribution is you're going to smoke some banana peels, right? That's that's a good way to really I had know, a, see into your future. I had a banana peel right here. Yeah. Do we have to dry them first or can I just eat the banana and then within minutes be smoking the No, you can't smoke a wet banana peel. That's right there on the title page of the that's, Bible. I feel like that's your memoir. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like some night, some goofy 1970s? You can't smoke a wet banana peel by the Smothers Brothers. <laughs> you know, I've always been looking for a good title for that. It's like George Carlin's failed book. You can't smoke a wet uh, banana peel. But you, but patent medicines are a are an American. Uh, there's an American as apple pie. Many are not w- patented. Uh, apple pie is a great cure for gingivitis. Is that true? Well, yeah. If you take my condensed apple pie. Tincture. You've been making a, a semi-synthetic uh, apple pie uh, uh, unguent. Yeah, I took apple pie and I reduced it down to its to to a white crystal powder, and then uh, you, well, you smoke it. You've got the apple molecules and the pie molecules in mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, we we both know a little bit about Lantrell, the subject of this uh, entry, because um, 
due to this had been requested by a listener named Mark, and we had we talked about Lantrol on the show show before. Yeah, um, and we were both comes up. We both were so enthusiastic. We both uh, read up on Lantrol and thought we were going to do the show. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, uh, we we hardly ever are are doing a show where we're both avowed experts on I would the topic. say uh, the most common omnibus te- case is that neither of us knows anything about the topic of the day. This is an unusual show in that we are both uh, really at the forefront of academic research on this topic. What's interesting, of course, is that there's a lot of chemistry involved in Laetrile, but at the end of the day, none of the chemistry really factors into the story. <laughs> it does not. Because <laughs> it doesn't uh, work. Because it doesn't work, and so who cares what its chemistry <laughs> is? I mean, the, whatever the application, the actual application for Laetrile is, it isn't why it's a famous compound. Uh, I learned incidentally why patent medicines are called patent medicines. Oh, go on. And most are not patented. Sure. Lay it, uh, I believe the characters of our story did patent some of their medicaments. Um, yeah, Laetrile has been registered with the U.S. Patent Office by the quacks uh, responsible. Uh-huh. That's good. Well, you know, it is a naturally occurring um, substance, but that in in a, in a refined state could be, yeah, sure, patented as a... What is it? The process that's patent, patented, or the powder? I believe pharmaceutical patents were not legal for much of the 20th century, but at some point they were legalized. Uh, you have to patent it for a purpose, and in this case, um, was it patented as a cancer treatment? Uh, no, disorders of intestinal fermentation. Sure. Boy, I've had a I've had a <laughs> DIF before. I don't know about you. <laughs> I just drove across the country, and the other uh, people in my truck would say that I had uh, had a case of it. Yes. You need to take a little more lateral. Your dosage is not high enough. That's right. Um, right, but, right. Just prior to being fatal, but just <laughs> enough to keep you. Yeah. There's a from there's a gassy. very narrow sweet spot where you have not died yet. Uh, in fact, patent medicines take their name from letters patent. Okay. Which European oh, right, royalty sure. would, uh, you know, patent meaning uh, open, like in the sense of a patently obvious or something. Um, letters patent were letters that were written by a, a, a personage of importance. Um, that for, gave you kind of per, uh, like, a, it was like a letter of introduction. Yes. And, and crucially, they're pu- for public consumption. Once you have a letters patent, a letter patent from His Majesty or Her Majesty, you can show it to anyone. Right. Um, whereas they would also write letters close, I think, which would be. The private sealed communication of the crown. Only to Bismarck. Right. I, I had a letters patent at one point. From you or to you? Uh, so the first time I went uh, on a trip to Europe, it was in the 1980s, and I was going, you know, I was a college student, long hair, hippie. And You've I never was, mentioned this. Where, where did you go? Uh, I spent uh, seven months just, oh, wait a minute. You were teasing me. Gotcha. Uh, I, you know, so anyway, I'm in Europe and I'm wandering around and my father in advance of me going, you know, my mom did the thing where she sewed $300 underneath a patch on the back of my backpack. But my dad actually went to Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska, (laughs) who's a family friend. And he said, Senator Ted, I want you to write a letter of introduction for the boy. This, this will wow the innkeepers yeah. from Belgium <laughs> to Moldova. I think his hope was that if I ever got arrested, you know, yeah. I could pull, if it was ever like a one of these Midnight Express situations. First of all, I don't have no run. idea how that paraphernalia got in my backpack. <laughs> and second there, of there's all. There's $300 under this patch, but second if that of doesn't all, work. Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska thinks that all those people in that room were of age. 
So, uh, so in my, uh, in that little pouch that I hung around my neck, along with my passport was a, was a letter from U S Senator Ted Stevens in a, in a Ziploc bag that said, I want you to, you know, give this boy all of the how was, finest. How was the letter doing the voice? Uh, well, you know, I think, the font I think it. any Marine standing at the, at the front of a U.S. embassy in I Kiev see. would have, would have read this. I would have been there standing like, let me Put in. me on the helicopter. <laughs> Put me on the helicopter. And they would have read it and they would have heard Senator Ted's voice saying, the internet is a series of tubes. <laughs> uh, do you, uh, do you feel like senators still get a lot of requests for that? Like, uh, I'm sure they do from privileged people dorks whose who's whose kids are going on yeah. study abroad yeah although i don't Gap think here. anymore it doesn't matter who who I, right. I may have been the last person that carried around a letters patent that's what i'm wondering if, yeah. if, if you were it what's crazy is i don't think i kept it i don't know where it is now i should have it well think of all the times you've been hassled by the man when yeah. you could you would love to just whip out a letter from <laughs> the late senator <laughs> <laughs> wave this letter around he may be he may be gone but the letter stands this still has force of law. You know, sovereign I, citizen. <laughs> next time I get into an argument with my daughter's mother around here about her education, I'm going to pull that letter out, or, or I'm going to make a facsimile of it by, by writing it down right now on a pad. I'm going to tell her that she needs a, a similar letter from a sitting senator so she can <laughs> trump you on this. <clears throat> if you were going to get a letters patent from a U.S. senator, who would you go to? Why would I go to a U.S. senator? Well, who would you get a letters patent from? Oh, the president uh, of the United States? Jake Paul. I don't even know who that is. Is he one of the Property Brothers? <laughs> He's a YouTuber. Jake Paul, a YouTuber. Yeah, don't you think that would be better? Like, Is he the one that took want... the pictures of the kid that hung himself in Japan? Yeah, I think it's his brother. Yeah, okay. No, you just want somebody that most people running the hostel or police station in, the, in wherever country you're in will recognize. Linda Evangelista. You know what, J-Lo, if I had a letters patent from yeah. J-Lo, that would get me in you anywhere. You want somebody with a big overseas following. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, somebody right. who was on Baywatch or uh, oh, maybe Will Smith. What about that? What about Benny from ABBA? Who yeah. isn't going to be impressed <laughs> with that? Excuse me, sir. I know you have me dead to rights here, but what would... What would Benny? Uh, what would Bjorn Alveus say if uh, if he were here? I think we know. Uh, in the case of uh, quackery, uh, these doctors who would these fake doctors who would purport to sell this stuff would often in the 19th century they would come with letters, fake letters from the Duke of whatever, saying, "I commend to you the uh, skin ointments of uh, of Doctor uh, uh, Formaldicus." Well, we saw this uh, in a recent episode about the uh, all the great diamond hoaxes of the sure. mid 19th century what the letters patent figured uh, figured in there with lord uh, lord such and such and it's easy to make fun of this stuff and think of it as a fun old timey thing except for the fact that you can no longer buy cow dewormer in america's agricultural supply stores because um everybody in america with an iq under a certain point has read on facebook that that is a cure for um covid cow dewormer yeah, the same people who thought it was uh, bleach or yeah, uh, hydroxychloroquine or whatever. It so was. people are uh, people are buying cow people, are, people are buying cow strength dewormer, and I think just just chugging it, like you know, like normally they would they would be chugging uh, uh, Michelob or or whatever. Cow dewormer, a, a main character in the movie Animal House. <laughs> 
Uh, so you're saying that it's not that we can't buy cow dewormer because it's been a, it's a controlled substance, No, but we can't it's buy it because out. it's just, the shelves are bare. The shelves are bare because of the rush for the magical healing powers of, of cow dewormer. Does it work to deworm a human? Is it just, is it, is it ultimately going to increase people's health by removing worms they didn't know they that had? That would be funny if it doesn't cure COVID, but like... Everybody in America is suddenly has amazing digestion and, yeah. and their great skin nutrition. looks great. And yeah. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Dr. Fauci created this Chinese virus just to fool us into deworming. Yeah. And it worked. It's amazing. You think that the people of Arkansas are going to die of COVID, but in fact, they become the healthiest people in America. He was playing nine dimensional chess all along. Like if you look at a map of COVID outbreaks and you look at a map of worm outbreaks, it's like the reverse color. So are patent medicines or, or, uh, or quackery, uh, is this a, a commonplace feature in other parts of the world? I mean, I know in, in Africa, there's a lot of sort of quackery that uh, is in the form of sorcery. Well, famously, you've got um, wealthy East Asian people who will buy up oh, all right. the bear powder rhino and rhino horn. horn and, you know, whatever else they think will help them to get it up. I want to know what the Australians fall for, what the Belgians fall for. We need um, a list of, uh, just to make us feel better about ourselves well, in, in dumb America. <laughs> actually, I you know, what I would like a list of is all of the nations of the world we have insulted, and then I want to go through the other nations and give them equal time. Oh, I see. I'm even on the show. Yeah, yeah. I want to start, that's right. There's the, the, the list of nations we've personally insulted off the show is all the nations of the world. Except Equatorial Guinea. We never... But if somehow we've missed uh, Hungary... No. Or, we've, we've covered Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> if we've missed Nepal, right? Uh, for example, you want to know something mean you can say about Nepal? Dalbot is not good for breakfast. I'm going to say that right out, right out of the gate. That is one thing about Nepal that I want everyone to is, know. Is Dalbot the king? They eat Dalbot for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's What's fine for dinner, but it's not good for breakfast. Is that the yak butter stuff? Breakfast. Uh, no, it's just lentils. Oh, it's got dal in it. It's oh, okay. dal. Yeah, it's dal. Dolbot, and then you put whatever else. Other nations don't always have breakfast. We have this idea that there are certain breakfast foods that must be carefully partitioned from the rest of the day. And weirdly, we put all our most delicious food there: bacon and pancakes and mm. alphabets. Mm, and alphabet. we and we say you're a loser if you're eating pancakes or alphabets at, at six p.m. Um, but whereas other countries will be like, nope. Um, do you like uh, kippers? That's breakfast food. Do you I like? Don't know I've never kippered. <laughs> You can't always do that joke. <laughs> uh, you know, in North Vietnam, pho is sure. a breakfast food. Korean, if you ride a bus to work in South Korea, it will smell like kimchi because everyone had their delicious kimchi breakfast. It's all cultural construct, this idea that there's a morning kind of a food. I didn't know I needed another reason not to ride a bus in South Korea, but <laughs> there it is. Add so, it to the pile. So, unfortunately, patent medicines and quackery, it's not old-timey. It's as lively a discussion in America as it's ever been. And this idea that it's linked to politics, you might think of as new. But in fact, as we will see, that goes back at least to the mid-20th century and the Laetrile scare and the Laetrile wars of the that kind of peaked in the 1970s. Um, as you've pointed out, Laetrile comes from nature it does it comes from apricot seeds and lots of different sort of seeds yeah, stone, right? stone fruits yeah um, stone fruits uh it was also a great autobiography title it was synthesized 
Uh, first, as long ago as 1830, by two French chemists, Pierre Robiquet and Antoine Boutron Charlard, who synthesized the very first glycoside, which is kind of a complicated sugar-based molecule. The problem with a, this, this particular glycoside is that uh, the thing attached to a sugar is a nitrile group, which has carbon and nitrogen in it. And if you um, treat that with other, if you get that involved in other chemical reactions, that will immediately give off carbon and nitrogen, which is a cyanide ion. So it's good stuff. So you shouldn't be chewing on your nectarine pits, America. Now, this would be a great technology to make cyanide, but we don't actually have a, a dearth of ways to make cyanide. I have never needed a way to make cyanide. So the fact that I have zero ways to produce it has been perfect for me right. in my life. But this was this, zero in, zero out. This was a discovery that wasn't the intention was not to no. discover cyanide. No, uh, uh, this is a, you know amygdalin is a naturally occurring substance. These guys were the first to isolate it, and the reason why, if you ever read a mystery novel and somebody gets poisoned with cyanide, the detective will also uh, often point out that it smells like bitter almonds. That's mm-hmm. the telltale clue, mm-hmm. and that's because. It's uh, frequently derived from bitter almonds. Yes, the more bitter the almond, the more actual cyanide anion uh, you have in there. Um, the, the scientists who, um, who first synthesized this glycoside did not immediately try to find um, pharmaceutical applications for it, but as early as 1890, people were testing what was called amygdalin, this first glycoside, for anti-cancer properties. So, you know, it's been 130 years of people checking to see if amygdalin might help with cancer. And, uh, and this was it due, does not. We're in 130 straight years of no results. This was due to a kind of um, a, a, like a logical pathway of of thinking that because this compound adhered to these other compounds that were that also then were related to it was a it was a process that an amateur scientist yeah with a little bit of sort of narrative. Uh, flexibility could that could draw a connection uh, like a like a chemical but they could they could what propose a, a chemical connection that actually could potentially relate to I'm, I, at I, least I'm, at least plausible enough to separate desperate people from their money which I'm, is I'm equivocating but there was there was at least in the beginning sure. and, and I'm equivocating because it's such a tenuous connection that it that it it falls into this category of like sunlight and positive thinking might help your hair grow back and maybe the fact that it, the fact that it's got cyanide in it would not be a deal breaker you know the fact that it's you know it's toxic is like yes that's how it attacks those tumors right. you know that's what that's what you're going to want here um how how quickly after it was that uh, this attempted connection was made did it fall into the hands of the quacks so, uh, but unscrupulous people who were promoting this, knowing that it didn't work, like not really until the 1950s, I think, uh, is when uh, the name Laetrile is first coined by a father and son duo. Um, do you, All, always suspect. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to like a doc. Two doctors who are who are a dad and his kid. Right. What a weird dynamic. You wouldn't go see a band that was a father and son duo, would you? Except that happens all the time now, right? With these old bands. Um, yeah. Right. All these you legacy bands. Zach Starkey in there playing drums for the for Led Zeppelin, but you don't. Or or yeah, Wolfgang Amadeus Van Halen. Exactly. Playing with Van Halen. I well, I didn't go see that. You wouldn't let your daughter in your band. Oh hmm. 
What about Jeff Tweedy and his son? They seem nice. Yeah, I suppose that's right. It's, yeah, it's something it, to do. I think it's better that your children have their own musical, uh, you know, adventures and not kind of like glom onto your classic rock band. But that's just me. Yeah, unless you know of any earlier precedent, I'm going to blame Ernst Krebs Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his son, unlikely, the likely unlikely named Ernst Krebs Jr., both of them going by doctor. Senior actually was a doctor, um, pharmacist who got a medical degree in 1903 when it was a lot easier to just go to some surgery college and say you're a doctor. His primary claim to fame was uh, something he called syrup leptinol, which is a remedy he said would work for all kinds of lung stuff, asthma, whooping cough. And it was uh, he claimed it was an old Indian remedy uh, made from parsley. Um, so basically... If you have trouble breathing or if you've got a cough, just eat more parsley. This is why. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is why. um, I've heard that even now. I've never heard a Middle Eastern person cough, and it's all the tabula there. (laughs) (laughs) And listen to me. I'm coughing, and I haven't had any parsley in weeks. Go eat some chimichurri stat. 10 cc's of chimichurri. Um, His son also went by Dr. Krebs, although he was, in fact, a medical school dropout. His, the only thing, he, the closest thing he got to a doctorate was in 1973 when the American Christian College uh, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, after he presented for an hour about the magic of Laetrile, um, awarded him an honorary doctorate, even though they were not accredited by the state of Oklahoma to give doctorates. Right. So not the not the best degree you could get. Well, you know, you and I are both Kentucky colonels, so it's not, <laughs> it's, we don't have a lot of room to talk. I actually got some more, I've been getting Kentucky colonel mail. I need to deliver you. We'll, we'll do that at the end of the show. I'll deliver you. The latest. Oh, okay. you're, maybe you're getting it at home now. Did you give them your address when no, you I donated? No, I don't think I got that. I think I, I think I probably gave them uh, the omnibus <laughs> <laughs> PO box. Well, spoilers for later, but they want us to order homecoming tickets. Oh, okay. Um, so between the two of them, these guys were father and son shysters who had a series of of weird things they called mutagen and pangamic acid, um, which, in order to keep from being regulated, they pretended was vitamin B fifteen. Um, and is the sense, and this is the, this is, I guess, the o- overarching question about all this sort of quackery. Like, wh- at what point, at what point is it a pure deception? I mean, we're we're experiencing this in in contemporary politics. There's a lot of pseudoscience. There's a lot of conspiracy theory, and a lot of very um, culpable people. But 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 it, but it works because there are so many people anxious to believe mm-hmm. where is the line between the the scientist who knows enough science to know that he's lying and the pseudoscientist who truly believes his quack premise i mean you'll never know as long as the quacks are making money hand over fist you but know like never, that's never... what's suspicious to me like they they have no reason to interrogate the actual success of their claims they don't care as long as they're making money. And the, whatever claim makes them more money, that's the win to them. But isn't there ever a deathbed confession where someone goes, ha ha, I knew it all along. Like, I keep waiting for there to be some L. Ron Hubbard letter where he's like, lol. But, you know, at some point they get into their own story. Right? I feel like the closest thing we have to that with the Krebs is, is the fact that the origin of how they came up with Laetrile, they embroidered several times over the years for legal reasons. Um in a way that makes me think they knew what they were doing. Like the, in the earliest case, they just say, yeah, we just started doing some trials in 1951 and we liked, you know, we'd made the semi-synthetic version of amygdalin. We called it Laetrile. 
And we started giving it to people. Uh, we don't have those records anymore, but it was so promising. Right. Um, whereas later when they talked about this, they tried to backdate the creation of Laetrile to, uh, crucially, before the passage of different Pure Food and Drug Acts. I see. Like, hey, we've been do- making this stuff since the 30s. Back then, we called it sarcarkinase. Oh, yeah, sarcarkinase. Sarcarkinase was a thing they were making as some mold they had found. on. They were making... Um, for some reason, they were interested in bourbon flavoring agents. They had a side business on uh, with a, an alcoholic side business. Mm-hmm. And this bourbon flavoring agent, some kind of weird mold or fungus was growing in the barrel. And they were like, this is it. This is a miracle stuff. We called it sarcarkinase. Oh, wait a minute. They invented Southern Comfort. <laughs> so later, they try to pretend that Laetrile, we were calling it sarcarkinase, this thing we were selling in the 30s. Yeah. But, you know, that was different. That was barrel mold. And then when they ran out of barrel mold, they decided to start synthesizing something like, you know, some semi-synthetic uh, treatment of the stuff they were grinding up out of apricot pits. Don't run don't run out of, of uh, barrel mold. Right. They only had the one barrel, apparently. Um, and also, over the years, the fact that when they talk about the mechanism of what this does for cancer, it's extremely sketchy. You know, in the earliest days, they say, this cures cancer. And then, a- after more government scrutiny, they say, well, it it controls it controls cancer. cancer. You know, it... it it attacks the cells that would attack the cells that attack the cancer or something. And then later, you know, when they're calling it a vitamin, because if you call it vitamin B17, you can avoid um, regulation on a pharmaceutical. This is a supplement. Uh, then they're saying it's a preventative. Better take a ton of this and then you won't get cancer. And no. then later it's like, well, this will ease the symptoms of cancer because it's so good at. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it's just, right. it's a moving goalpost. Uh, we should say that the FDA, the United States Food and Drug Administration, was only founded in 1906. As a result of uh, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, about how gross your food is. Right. And it it has been it has been consistently playing, uh, as we're, we're fond of saying here, a game of whack-a-mole um, with all of the different, you know, trying to, trying to do the, the um, trying to do a yeoman's job of, of regulating food. And drugs, uh, and just when you're 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 busy over here focusing on food, then the quacks come out with the drugs. You turn your attention there, food goes to hell. And in fact, most of the most of the current authority by which the U.S. government, the federal government, oversees safety of that stuff did not start until the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, right. um, which is when kind of uh, testing of medical devices and treatments began at the federal level. Um, which is why these guys tried to backdate their stuff before 38 or, or updates to the act in 1962. Um, this is a, a recent, even though it's been going on for all of our lifetimes, it's a comparatively recent development. So the Krebs, uh, the Krebs get away with peddling this stuff until, uh, the state of California starts investigating pretty early in the fifties. Um, and f- quickly, they're the first to discover that they cannot duplicate any of these results that these guys are claiming as to how apricot pits um, will cure cancer. They uh, and we should say we should say right away that that cancer sucks, and and it, it's so difficult to uh, not 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 just I mean it's so difficult to 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 understand and and so difficult to accept to to even comprehend that that it's um it's a ripe area for it leads to desperate confused people right. who are already being you know because there's no cure they're being provided with a variety of treatments experimental ideas all with its own their own compromises and devastating side effects um 
And uh, and it's huge. Every year, 2 million Americans. This year, 2 million Americans will get cancer. 600,000 Americans will die of cancer. That's a COVID-sized chunk of the country wow. every year. And it's not an all-time high. Uh, when our story begins in the 1950s, cancer deaths were a quarter higher and still on the way up. When do you think cancer peaked in America? 80, 1980. Pretty close, yeah, 1990. All the smokers... Who you know oh, were of course. who were quitting, but you know now we're getting into the age where all their, you know, when half of America smoked during the sixties and seventies, that started to decline around nineteen eighty. But um, but by then it was too late for those lungs. Well, and also the asbestosis, uh, all those people work working in all the asbestos people, yeah, working shoveling asbestos. And I guess that it probably would have been even higher. I was considering the fact that you know one thing that raises cancer rates is uh, other stuff getting cured, other diseases declining. You know, cancer is the thing that gets you because you already survived the 10 other things that would have killed you in the 1830s or the 1930s. Yeah, of right? course, as the as the um the average age increases, you're just that much more vulnerable to right. cancer. So the um you because know, you see that all the time an 89-year-old dies of cancer. Sure. And you think, well, 89 is a pretty good run. Good job. I mean, sorry about your prostate, but you know, a yeah. hundred years ago, you You'd would have been, been dead in your fifties from, right, or from 30s. Yeah. So, you know, that's some, the kind of thing where, you know, even though it's declined since then, it's, it's probably been a, a, you know, it would have been a much steeper decline in actual, you know, incidence of people of the same age. If you could, if you could equal all that out, if you could level all that out, maybe a future link will work on that graph for us. Uh, but um, four-dimensional graph. So, in the, so in the 1950s, the, you know, there's there's a you know, it's a it's a huge target for people making magic, quacky cures, and because it's, it's you know, cynically, it's a huge market, and it's a desperate market. Well, and so much of what we think of as modern medicine is also, even as late as the 1950s, still kind of coalescing. Um, a lot of a lot of our current technology and understanding of the body hasn't really, um, ha hasn't all settled down. I, I, uh, in researching vitamin B17, I discovered that all of the vitamins, and there are 13 vitamins, all of the vitamins we only isolated between 1913 and 1948. Back then we were just chewing on orange peel for the hell of it. So there were no, you know, in, in, Prior to World War One, there was no sense of well, there was no way to get a vitamin outside of eating it in a food, yeah. and that was true for some of the vitamins as late as 1950. And so, in many cases, like the connection between that particular compound and health was not even known. I mean, anecdotally, you would be like, well, you won't get berry berry if you eat, you know, whatever. But, sure, suck on a lime. But that was all. Yeah, that was it. Hello, Tushy. Hello, Tushy. Tushy, Tushy, Tushy. Hello. Is that Partridge Family? <laughs> Hello, Tushy, my old friend. How about a sad version, like oh. a like a minor key acoustic guitar? Hello, Tushy. <laughs> Is it my Tushy you're looking for? Uh, hello, Tushy. Hello, Tushy. What's the? Is the bidet saying hello to your Tushy? Is that the? Is that what's going on here? Who is speaking in the sentence? Hello, Tushy. The void. The void. the void is speaking. Hello, Tushy. I. Hello, Tushy. I would like to recommend a better way to use the toilet. Tushy. It's, it's, tushy. It's the voice of God. Over here. Tushy. Hello. Uh, hello, Tushy provides a better and more hygienic way to use the toilet. Yes. Uh, a famously uh, a 
unhygienic place. I mean, we're still using a descendant of what our caveman ancestors would do with the leaves and a hole in the ground. Hmm. And we're living in the 21st century. Yeah, there should be a space age way to... We're living uh, in an age of wonders. Space space age equivalent of leaves and a hole in the ground. And what is it, Ken? It's the Hello Tushy 3.0 modern bidet attachment. Okay. It cleanses... Sounds very space It cleanses you with a precise stream of fresh water. Again, not something available to our hunter-gatherer ancestors unless they sat on the geyser just right. Right. And it's not an imprecise uh, geyser. It's not like you're sitting... It's not like somebody with a fire hose... It's not like you're... It's you're, not a blunt instrument, as it yeah, were. Right. This is precision stuff. You're not You're not putting your tushy in a raging torrent. No, it's eco-friendly because you're going to use less toilet paper. It's easy to install um, because it doesn't require any electricity or additional plumbing. Uh, and it's affordable. Yeah, well, that levels the playing field. You don't want only some people to have... You don't want the billionaires to have clean butts and everybody else, you know, the 99.999% of humanity to have unclean butts. Yeah, we should start calling billionaires clean butts. Hey, what's up, clean butt? I bet your butt's really clean. Boy, that'd really get them. No, but then it would be democratized by Hello Tushy 3.0, which is... You could stand up and say, I too am a clean butt. I too am a clean butt. Clean butts for the masses. We're all clean butts. Uh, It's sanitary. You... You spray, you dry, and you go. No, no, no poking around with little pieces of paper. Oh dear. Go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus to get 10% off plus free shipping of this incredible modern apparatus. Potty apparatus. Yeah. Incredible modern, uh, hygienic system. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus to get 10% off. That's hellotushy.com slash omnibus. To be fair, pharmaceuticals is one area where a lot of people, sometimes diseases do get cured by just somebody chewing on the right plant. Well, in my own case, and I've talked about it on the show oh, before. What did you chew on? Well, I'm, I'm a, right now I'm chewing on a leather strap because I because we both prepared for this show. No, I, I, uh, I've talked before about my bipolar disorder and how the drug that ultimately worked for me, a drug called lamictal or lamotrigine, depending on which which yeah. the brand you're talking about. Um, you can mention them both. Neither advertises on the show. Lamotrigine and lamictal. Go 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 forth. Ask your doctor if, <laughs> if lamotrigine is right for you. But it was originally developed as an anti seizure medicine, yeah. and it's and the recognition that it worked as a bipolar drug was again just like licking a frog in the Amazon. It was a it was somewhat accidental. So there still is, or not accidental, but, uh, but coincidental. Yeah. Uh, so there's still in, within, you know, the, the drug community, all this accident and, and sense that, well, this, this didn't work for weight loss, but it turns out it, you know, it improves your eyesight. But we're 60 or 70 years into the kind of the modern checking of these claims about Laetrile and nobody's ever been able to validate any of them. As, you know, as early as the mid-50s, the state of California can't duplicate those results. And when they offer to treat um, cancer patients in a L.A. County hospital to do a, you know, to, a, to test Laetrile in that environment, the Krebs say, yeah, we'll do it, but you have to put this guy, our advocate, in charge of the, of the ward and the test. And the state of California says, and the count, well, The counting of votes in, in Arizona. <laughs> right. 
the um, the state of California says no, that's not what we're going to do, and and that kind of, that pattern kind of continues um, throughout this story of the Krebs kind of dodging and weaving, but the um, the thing, the story kind of fundamentally changes. You know, Leotrol became a real cause celeb. Like if you've never heard of any other weird quackery thing, you might have heard of. Leotrol, and that's because of how pro- high profile it became in the 60s and the 70s. In 1956, a man named Andrew McNaughton met the Krebs. Um, he's called the godfather of Leotrol today. Um, he was the son of the commander of the Canadian Armed Forces during World War II, General A.G.L. McNaughton, huh. um, who was later a president of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, but this was a guy who, you know, he was a... He's got a letters patent. Yeah, you know, he, he's got a great uh, story. He was a chief test pilot for the Canadian Air Force, but he made his fortune after World War II in a less um, promising way. He, it was basically gun running. He contributed World War II war surplus to, you know, he could, stuff he could resell to Israel. Later, he sent it to Batista in Cuba, but it turned out he was a double agent actually working for Castro, Whoa. such that when Castro won the uh, revolution— he made McNaughton an honorary citizen of Cuba. So the guy's a gun runner. Sure. And he uh, <coughs> he loved Leotril. He was intrigued by the fact that the Krebs seemed to be uh, a punching bag for government. And so he founded uh, companies and factories to synthesize Leotril and... Uh, was interested in publicity, getting books and articles written about, you know, 500,000 copies of Laetril Control for Cancer hit store shelves funded by this guy. And this is a this is a real big story. The story of Laetril will be all these government skeptics thinking, you can't take away my apricot pits. So it's a it's a strange combination of of uh or not maybe strange, but but a combination of suspicion of government expertise now going back to the 1950s kind of in some ways overlapping just a like conspiracies of of the elders of zion level of of belief that there is a a cabal that involves the government and corporations but also then the endorsement of these fringe celebrities celebrities that aren't actually doctors but that but the, the, their endorsement gives a imprimatur of legitimacy to yeah, the crankiness. One of my favorite characters in here is a, is a, a biology professor at Loyola who um, claimed he could cure breast cancer with Laetrell named Dr. Manner. Uh, he used to go by, he had a PhD, he was a professor, but he would often in his, um, in his Laetrell work, he would go by Harold Manor DN, which he later said stood for doctor of nothing. <laughs> But he was, you know, he would just inject uh, just massive doses of this. Well, I mean, he was using for, for, he was using um, laetril or uh, amygdalin in a base of meat tenderizer. So he would inject mice with these massive quant- with tumors with these mass quantities of meat tenderizer, and surprisingly enough, bits of the mice would um, die and fall off because he was injecting it with meat tenderizer. Oh wait, so and the now- mouse wouldn't die just. Parts of the mouse? Oh, the mouse would probably almost certainly die. Right. But but this is a this is a great sign that the injected area immediately became an abscess. Look, the tumor's gone. Uh, you know, and it's just because he's 
he's using these enzymes of meat tenderizer as a as a uh, medium for his for his cyanide his, his for his cyanide yeah that's what you got to do when you're injecting cyanide into somebody make right. sure you're also just mel- melting their flesh melting enzymes um a, a big thing that because of the increasing u.s regulation you know a big st- uh, step in this story is uh, what happens when a San Diego school teacher named Cecile Hoffman badly has read about Laetrile due to this kind of McNaughton-funded publishing blast and cannot get... Uh, she's had a mastectomy. She's worried about the cancer coming back. She cannot get Laetrile for her cancer scare. Um, but she finds a guy named Ernesto Contreras who has a clinic in Tijuana. And sure, he'll he'll track down some, some of McNaughton's amygdalin and give her some. And suddenly, uh, south of the border... Uh, Contreras's outfit becomes a destination for uh, you know people who are Americans who have heard of Laetrile but can't get it due to government regulation. So he founds the uh, it's a what well, it's called Oasis of Hope Hospital um, in Tijuana, which is still an a, oasis of hope. I guess. I mean, it's true. It is providing hope, but that's all it's providing. Yeah. Because it's not actually providing medical care for for these desperate cancer patients. But Hoffman was sure that this Laetrile had saved her life, and she formed the IACVF, International Association of Cancer Victims and Friends. I, I assume friends of the victims, not friends of the cancer. Yeah, friends of the friends of the cancer. Well, the the presumably healed cancer people. And, and it later turned to cancer victors and friends when, uh-huh. to, you know, when the, the messaging of victims started to seem uh, a little dubious. Um, the fact is she was only an enthusiastic supporter for a few more years before actually her breast cancer returned and had metastasized and she died in 1969. Hmm. Um, but by that time it was too late. She had created this kind of massive lobbying group and this movement of uh, this well-funded, well-publicized healthcare system in Mexico providing terrible healthcare. It's the QAnon uh, syndrome where, um, where, or, or any apocalyptic cult, the fact that the, the, the date of the apocalypse comes and goes with, without an apocalypse or the, the date of the, the big revelation that Hillary Clinton is eating babies comes and goes and no revelation is forthcoming. It doesn't dissipate the movement in a, in a lot of ways it reinforces it. No, there's a case of, um, there's a doctor named John Richardson in this story who called himself a metabolic doctor. He was a San Francisco GP who started giving people cancer patients Laetrile and was, you know, charging them $2,000 and, you know, trip, you know, multiplied his income 17 fold in a matter of years by doing so. Um, he, uh, he claimed that they had great benefits and, uh, dramatically improved. And when his results were examined, <coughs> It turned out that Richardson had to admit that, yeah, most of his patients had died. Oh. And uh, what, what do you say in that situation is, well, I probably didn't give them enough Laetrile. Well, you can say they don't have cancer anymore. <laughs> 100% sort of <laughs> cure rate. Um, so he just keeps upping the dosage, you know. I'm going to give you vitamins and Laetrile, vitamins and Laetrile. Um, the, uh, in the 1960s, various... It gets big enough that not just the state of California, but the U.S. government and various medical associations start cracking down. Um, Dr. Krebs Jr. is jailed at one point. Um, one of the interesting, one of the funny details that comes out at trial is that he has a vanity license plate advertising vitamin B15, one of his, one of his patent medicaments. Um, but B15, this, not B17. 
but yeah, B15, I think, is pargamic acid, their other kind of cure-all, before, before they renamed Laetrile vitamin B17 um, so that it couldn't be, regu- in hopes that it wouldn't be regulated as a drug, but instead treated as a... Uh, yeah, right. Uh, what is it? Supplement? A health supplement, yeah, a nutritional supplement. Um, but when this Dr. Richardson guy was arrested, that kind of made this into a big political cause. Because now, look, this is big government actually coming for our our beloved doctors right. here. Jackbooted thugs trying to take away our sheep farming. A, st- a former Stanford lab tech created the Committee for Freedom of Choice in Cancer Therapy, which sounds exactly like something that might get formed to some anti-mask or anti-vax group that would get formed today. Right. Why not have freedom of choice? Sure. Um, it's closely allied with, as you might expect, um, arch-conservative uh, side of the political spectrum back then. It's aligned closely with the John Birch Society, which is already sp- skeptical of government and sure that um, on many levels, these bureaucracies that, that intrude into your life on a daily basis are doing so for malicious ways, even if they're stopping you from taking cyanide. It's, you know, right. today we would think it's the silliest possible thing that these people are dying on the wall of not taking a life-saving vaccine. Wait but a back, minute. But back then the birchers were literally yelling for their right to eat cyanide. Um, and Based not on the evidence of cyanide being proven to affect cancer, but based entirely on a kind of negative supposition that the FDA isn't earnest in trying to regulate bad food and drugs. It's not trustworthy. Is is in fact part of a global cabal of people interested in controlling your mind. What do medicines and treatments do? They save lives. Who gives you those? Doctors. Who's stopping them? The federal government. I see. So, you know, you've got... Even if those doctors are awarded a degree from the Tulsa (laughs) Christian Institute of And even if they're all making suddenly suspiciously millions of dollars and building fancy new clinics in Mexico. The Oasis of Hope still exists today, and it's a particular magnet, I think, for desperate British cancer patients who have heard of Laetrile. It's people crossing the Atlantic to, um, to get poisoned in Tijuana. There so, are, there are, uh, there is convincing, uh, evidence that you can go have, um, LASIK eye surgery in Mexico <laughs> for a lot cheaper than in the United States. I'll tell you, I know a lot of, I know some elderly people who have, or who are watching friends retire to South of the border just because their money's going to, their retirement is screwed. Their money's going to go farther if they wind up on a beach in Costa Rica or, or Mexico. Um, Shh, don't give it away. That's the Roderick plan, that's my we plan call too. it. <laughs> so suddenly, with the muscle of the John Birch movement behind it, now there's um, you know whole speakers, circuits, and John Birch bookstores that are marketing Laetril to a credulous audience. And now it becomes a partisan issue um, where the big government's against it and liberty-loving little folks like you and I have to stand up to it. 27 states end up passing laws specifically allowing... Um, Laetrile treatments. Let me guess which states. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we could all draw that map pretty easily. And in fact, in 1977, a, a Laetrile case comes before an Oklahoma judge who, who it seems is very sympathetic to the Laetrile claims. You know, it's clear from the trial. And he turns down a ruling that, uh, in fact, um, the FDA has no right to... Uh, regulate food and drugs? To regulate food and drugs for terminally ill patients. This is the line that... Um, because why the, not? This is the line that Judge Bohannon draws. Exactly. And that's the argument. Because why not? Look, these people are dying anyway. Who are we to tell them they shouldn't be, you know, uh, enriching all these quacks? Weird. And, and uh, this is, in fact, later overturned by a U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1979. But the, you know, the regulatory results are delayed such that well into the 1980s, um, 
terminally ill patients are, are trying out all kinds of quackery uh, based on this Oklahoma decision. Um, by the end of the 1970s, 1970s boomed like 70,000, at least 70,000 American patients uh, are taking Laetrile for cancer. 70,000? Yeah. By when? Yeah, the mid-70s, I wow, think. Wow, 70,000 people taking cyanide derived from apricot pits. But bad media starts. Um, a two-year-old boy in Massachusetts named Chad Green um, has his leukemia brought into remission with chemo, but his parents believe in this metabolic therapy. In other words, um, laetrile and meat tenderizer. And, right. uh, and he starts to show signs of cyanide toxicity. So Massachusetts authorities um, try to have him declare uh, declared a war of the war of the state, leading to this massive court battle, which leads to his parents spiriting him away to Mexico, so Doctor Contreras can keep giving him uh, cyanide, and he died at the age of two uh, from cyanide poisoning. Ouch! By all appearances, even though chemo was working, chemo was working, and Doctor Contreras, of course, is you know saying, "Hey, hey, hey this kid has." Uh, leukemia, and uh, this kid died of leukemia, but look what a pleasant death Laetril gave him here in beautiful Tijuana. Um, and, th- you know, this is the kind of story that makes the papers. And then it gets worse in 1980 when beloved screen actor Steve McQueen is diagnosed with um, it's a cancer of mesothelioma. What's it called? Mesothelioma. Mesothelioma. Um, which is which is uh, connected to asbestos. Yes. At first, he thinks it's, you know, he's smoked his whole life. When he starts to get coughing and shortness of breath, he stops smoking, but it keeps getting worse. And it turns out it's not in his lungs. It's in the, what, the mesothelium? It's just the, the tissue around the chest organs, I think. Yeah. That, um, the, that the, uh, the asbestos fibers managed to worm their way yeah. toward. And it's, it's, and he had a bunch of stories where it could clearly have been asbestos, right? You know, there yeah, was, he uh, was shoveling it in his grandfather's attic or something like that. I think it was also maybe a fireproof fireproof stuff he had to wear for his in his day job just to do Hollywood stunt work, you know? Well, he was a or car he, racer. Yeah, it was it was during his car racing, you're right. Yeah. So he's he's wearing fire uh, fireproof safety equipment just stuffed with asbestos. Um but Steve McQueen is desperate and he in 1980 he heads down to Mexico because he did all the normal cancer treatments but it was ineffective and so it's in this family of why not, right? Yeah. It's the the Judge Luther Bohannon argument. So he heads south of the border and has a, a de-licensed Texas dentist giving him uh, Laetrile at his clinic. And he gives, you know, he gives glowing treatments to the, the press about how much uh, the miracle drug Laetrile, but hard to conceal the fact that he then dies a few months later. See, I think he's burying the lead. I think what he, what he really should have been saying is uh, that orthodontists should be who you seek out for, uh, for cancer treatments, right? Like that seems to be the innovation. Going to dentists. Instead of oncologist, orthodontist. It's very close on the uh, on the list of doctors. Because it starts with O? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I totally understand this impulse of, uh, you know, can- like we were saying, cancer is, cancer is just so tricky because nobody knows how well any of the treatments work and they're all going to kick your ass. And, you know, when one fails, there's always a bunch of, well, you know, because there's so much work into cancer going on, there's always a bunch of other experimental things. Right. Things go into remission and then they reappear mysteriously. So the timeline is tricky. Like, like, I'm sure you and I have both known people who have fought cancer. And Mm -hmm. I, I remember when Alex Trebek was sick, you know, he was, you know, his first round of chemo went well. 
And then he had to do more chemo and that didn't go as well. And his doctor put him on an experimental thing that really wiped him out and had all these terrible side effects. And he actually said, I mean, his book ends with him saying, just last night, I told my family, I've had enough. Like, I am not taking any more experimental stuff. I'm going to do this course and then... We'll, you know, we'll just see what happens. Like I'm, I, I, I'm tired of what the fight is is doing to me, and I want to, I want to go better than that. And like I had to read that audiobook out loud. Like that's my voice on the audiobooks. You know, with Alex being like, I, I just, I just can't anymore with these, this rounds of cancer treatment. And that is a hundred percent true. Like that's what cancer does to somebody. Is it puts them in that situation where, like, boy, I'm making my life terrible, and I'm making this hellish, but you know, is death worse or not? Like it's an impossible ethical and future telling problem. I had a friend say the exact same thing. Um, just said after rounds and rounds of chemo, um, you know, I'm, this I'm is worse than death. Yeah, I'm just, it's, it's an awful thing, but I'm done, you know, yeah. and, and it was, it wasn't, it wasn't even resignation. It was just, uh, it was, it was just a feeling like, well, this is worse than, than dying. And that's a, that's a profound feeling. Why wouldn't you in that case snort Epsom salts or. And, but super common, you know, this idea of somebody on their deathbed who just knows it's time to go and badly wants to go is not uncommon. It's, it's centuries old. It's a, it's a trope for a reason. It's a, it's very human. We, apparently we can sense that, you know, we can sense that this is not life anymore. And, even though I don't know what oblivion is, it's got to be better than this. Also, and and this I think is is uh, yet to be proved by science, but we all die. That's my theory. Uh, I, from what I've seen, so it has to happen, right? I, I believe that's true. One yeah. one to a customer. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe you want you know you want a good one with some controller. And in this, in Alex's case, he was right. You know, he had a he had a very peaceful end with his family and friends. You know, which maybe would not have been true with another six rounds of awful invasive things. Right. Um, but the, you know, the lateral really gave us a peek into the future of this politicizing of medical treatment um, to the degree that, you know, people saw that you could enrich yourselves uh, by, you know, not just with some slick patter to desperate people, but with ideological and specifically anti-government messaging. And it's still making a ton of people rich today. What's interesting is that it <clears throat> it's the place, maybe more than any other, where the left and right collide. And I'm talking about the, the kind of the fringe right and the fringe left, both for various reasons, anti-government, anti um anti-science, but also like what feels like kind of positive, holistic version of uh, spirituality-based science. Somebody on the right wouldn't say Eastern medicine, but they're going to get the same effects as the the person on Bashan who won't get a measles shot. Yeah, like right now, the various, um, there there are whole categories of treatment, of of unproven treatment for cancer um, that include... Changes in diet, electromagnetic uh, cures for cancer, energy-based cures, plant and plants and funguses. Now, these are just categories under which there are numerous enough versions that that it warrants a category. Aromatherapy, 
uh, spiritual healing, um, Ayurvedic or um, like, you know, kind of like other cultures, Greek cancer cures, which in which, what is that? That's put, that's a kind put, of put satsiki on the no, tumor. No, it's an intravenous oh. application. There's a Germanic new medicine, which is basically just an anti-Semitic. Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, theory. Make, make that, your Aryan body stronger. Well, it, it's a theory that all modern medicine is just a Jewish conspiracy uh, to keep us from Valhalla or whatever. Um, you know, shamanistic methods. Like there are so cancer is kind of a clearinghouse for for every every kind of um, fringe and, and you know, groups of people, yoga instructors and white nationalists are united only in their suspicion of vaccines. Their love of weird, weird medicine. Right, and belief that, that the actual cures for what ails us are, are intentionally obscured by this government-slash-medical, um, like, global... Conspiracy. One interesting side effect of the high-profile um, battles over Laetrile in the 1970s, which kind of discredited as a cancer drug, is even though it's still around, it's been touted as a cure for other uh, difficult-to-treat illnesses. Like, like bipolar? Maybe <laughs> I should try it. Why are you not sucking cyanide? <laughs> no, but everything from AIDS to arthritis to All multiple right. sclerosis, like any kind of chronic or difficult-to-treat disease, um, people, you know, the, the Laetrile hucksters will be like, well, you know what cures AIDS, obviously, is the, the healing power of cyanide. Um, so it's it's still around today, despite the fact that it's mostly famous as a dangerous, discredited thing. I mean, the hardest the hardest uh, platform to advance is that death is inevitable and not always great. I mean, often uncomfortable. You, you, and you un- wouldn't you wouldn't vote for the candidate that starts his stump speech with. Death comes unexpectedly. We, we all die, and sometimes it sucks. And the one thing that that it always has in common is that the people left behind will miss you. In the words of of Keanu Reeves, um, I don't even know where that's from. Point Break. No, Keanu Reeves uh, like famously did an interview. Oh, he just says this where somebody said like, "What's you know, like what's your what's?" Oh no, it was uh, it was Stephen Colbert asked him, "What do you think happens after after you die?" Because you know he's a notorious Catholic and wanted to know Keanu Reeves's feelings on the afterlife. <laughs> notorious Catholic Stephen Colbert. It's hard to believe they still let him, let him loose. And Keanu sat and thought about it for a second. He said, well, I know that the people that knew you will miss you. And that concludes Leotril. Entry 696.mk1618. Certificate number... 527 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and in the even more unlikely event that you have conquered death, please spend your <laughs> interminable hours, <laughs> your long, long vampiric hours. We have new existential crises in the post-death era. I'm yeah, sure. right. What to do with all the time? I do feel like future listeners are likely to be listening from a time in which cancer is no longer in super. Like, it does seem like we're kind of at an inflection point now where lots of new therapies are coming online. Yeah, let's hope. But at the same time, <clears throat> how long do you really want to live? Yeah. And also, you're really clogging up the highways. You know what I'm saying? You're not You're not in great shape, even if you survive that bout of cancer at 95. You are still a 95-year-old. 
Anyway, you can get these and more opinions by logging on to any social media platform and searching at Ken Jennings. And you can also find some archives of my deep thoughts at John Roderick. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, you can seek us out, and we hope you do, on patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Please support the show. We are a listener-supported show, uh, and we started doing that after we left our corporate overlords uh, at the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, who were funding our show as part of the conspiracy against health. Disinformation campaign. Yeah, why did we originally called Omnibus uh, Vaccines Work? Yeah, vaccineswork.com. No, don't go to vaccineswork.com. I, I, I cannot vouch for what's there. But do go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and support the show with, uh, with a, your donation of any size. And uh, you can also seek out other futurelings who will hopefully convince you to support the show because they are they're fans of the show and, and fun and smart people. Thanks to Mark for suggesting your topic for this show. And you can send us actual things, including your own quackery, your own patent medicines and, uh, and cough syrups and cancer cures, to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. A lot of those, I've just realized, a lot of those patent medicines got legitimized in the 20th century by um, turning them into soft drinks. Really? All right, Dr. Pepper. Half He's of, not a real doctor. Half of our soda case came from um, Southern pharmacists trying to cure psoriasis, right. right? I wish they still had the cocaine in that in some of those pops. Yeah, when they had that new Coke Zero, and they're like, this is our best formulation ever. I was like, really? really? Better than better than the cocaine one? I feel one? like the cocaine one probably was pretty darn good. I had, I had told you I, I got this thing from the Kentucky Colonels. They're uh, inviting us to their open house weekend in November, which includes <laughs> like six different bourbon and horse racing themed events it's exactly what you would hope the state of kentucky would be inviting you to there's a bourbon museum with a bourbon tasting then there's a private bourbon tasting Hmm. then there's a cocktail party evening includes multiple bourbon tastings Mm -hmm. and then there's a bourbon raffle (laughs) a bourbon raffle yeah not even in connection with the bourbon tasting or the uh, of the various kinds you know i was just in kentucky and it occurred to me to try and reach out to my fellow kentucky Colonels yeah, how do you uh, to say you, like you don't yeah, want to go yeah, hang yeah. out at headquarters? But I didn't. I didn't do it, and partly it was because I was busy visiting graveyards and didn't have the time to to socialize. But also, I don't live within a bourbon based economy. Either do you? Yeah. So none of those events. I guess we uh, can enjoy the horse racing. But it was a bourbon fueled ho- horse racing, uh, right? Isn't all horse racing sitting around drinking mint juleps? Uh, but anyway, this is just uh, one of the many perks we get as Kentucky colonels is we get <laughs> invited to fundraisers like this. <laughs> I did find, I did write write uh, the Kentucky colonels uh, a check for their nonprofit work, just so I feel like their my colonelcy is uh, is doing some good work. Yeah, back in the Commonwealth of is it a Commonwealth of Kentucky? It's the one Commonwealth left. No, there's a few. Well, it's the Commonwealth of Connecticut, right? Or what's the? No, it's Ohio has a weird flag. Virginia has Virginia like and this. Massachusetts, I believe, is Commonwealths of Yes, Kentucky USA. is a Commonwealth. I'm glad, like, nobody else heard us do this or we would lose our, our colonelcies. Four states are Commonwealths, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and uh, Virginia. That's Pennsylvania. the one. We missed Pennsylvania. People were probably yelling Pennsylvania. Well, the Pennsylvania, you know, we've done so many shows about Pennsylvania, you would think we would know that by now. 
Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.